As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I do kind of get into like a post-book depression <laughs> after, <laughs> after the really heavy one. <laughs> hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 187. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Today's guest, Hannah Christmas, is a stay-at-home mom whose reading life changed forever when she had a baby. Not only how much she read or when she read, but the big picture, long-term plan way she wanted to share her love of reading with the world. Today, we're chatting about fresh blood in the bookselling world the treatment for a serious overdose of books set in New York City, literary handcrafts, and much, much more. Let's get to it. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. So we got your submission from our form at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash guest. And I was excited to see that you live in Kansas City because I was just there for the first time. Yeah, I saw that. Which was a delight. (laughs) I Instagrammed a few beautiful bookish sites in Kansas City, including your amazing library wall with this 30-foot tall books painted on the side of the parking garage at the central location of the library. What brought you to Kansas City? Well, I've grown up here um, all my life. Grew up in a suburb just outside and then uh, stayed. I went to college in the city and met my husband and we're still here and we love it. We can't imagine leaving. I hear that you dream of being a professional (laughs) reader or a librarian or working in books somehow. Somehow. What do you actually do? I am a stay-at-home mom with a two-year-old daughter. I went to college for accounting for, for the hopes of having a job at the end of it and then I got pregnant. So that didn't really work out in the end. (laughs) Hannah, that sounds a lot like my own story. I'm really resonating with the life path you're describing here. (laughs) I don't know what everyone's experience is like with a young child as a newish mother, but mine involved a lot of picture books. Is it fair to say that you really are working in books somehow these days? So many picture books. We have those great baby lit books, which are a lot of the um, classics like Jane Eyre and Anne of Green Gables. They're just picture books, of course, but I love going through those and seeing how excited she gets when when we read them. And Dr. Seuss is a big thing right now and all sorts of things. (laughs) Tell me more about your professional bookish aspirations. What does the dream look like? The dream is big. I would love to open some sort of bookshop or even like a book truck. I keep seeing those on the internet and I just get so excited about selling books, but of course I 
have no idea how to do that, how to get started on that. And so uh, it is a very big dream. But if it could be smaller, I would love to, to work in like a, a library or just, a, you know, a bookstore that's already established. So it's something that interests you, but you don't know how to get there. Yeah, starting a business is really scary. And my dad actually like runs his own business and has always uh, discouraged the idea <laughs> growing up just because it, it is a lot of work and scary to jump into something like that. But, you know, living in Kansas City, there is definitely a need for it. And I see that and it makes me sad. So I, I constantly dream of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, tell me again what the business would look like. Oh, it would probably just be like a children's bookstore because, you know, at, right at the moment, reading books to my daughter, it's definitely a passion of mine now is, is looking at children's books. And I've actually been reading a lot more like middle grade books uh, lately because I guess I kind of skipped that growing up. I don't remember reading a lot of middle grade. I remember reading like really young books and then classics and, you know, books that were beyond my age I would love to dive into that more, you know, a very, you've got mail kind of, <laughs> kind of idea. I'm sure that starting a business is intimidating. First of all, can I start by saying really good advice I was given when I was 25? Yes. <laughs> when I said to a trusted person in my life, I'm so frustrated that my career is not where I wanted it to be. And he very kindly said something like, honey, you got time, <laughs> which I really appreciated. <laughs> I need to hear that every now and then. <laughs> well, I mean, it's true. We do because we can be very happy with where our lives are mm -hmm. and simultaneously think, ah, professionally, this isn't what I wanted yet. And so it didn't really make me feel a lot better at the time, but it made me feel a little better. And when I look back, that was really good advice. <laughs> that wasn't the only conversation we had about it. I think I need a reassurance. Like you really do have time to figure things out. Yeah, I think that's hard to remember because, you know, when you're a kid and you have these dreams, you just think as soon as you graduate high school, you're just going to go out and do it. It's going to be over. And nobody tells you about the long process and how long that feels when you're doing it in the midst of it. Right. You graduate from college, you're 22, and thus begins the rest of your life, yep, right? Yep. <laughs> the people who have that figured out right away and who start on the path they end up on are called fast starters and good for them, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know what that feels like. It's been really exciting for me to see as an author and a all around weird jack of all trades, Jill of all trades book person, the groundswell of independent bookstores and businesses happening these days. Mm -hmm. And it's so, it almost looks to me from the outside, this is not confirmed by people who are actually industry bookseller <laughs> uh, experts. This is my take as someone who's just looking around the world is it seems like there's a real changing of the guard going on. And I'm seeing younger people, especially younger women, maybe these are just the booksellers I know in their 20s and 30s, mm -hmm. taking over old shops from people who are retiring or starting new ones. And they look different and they're entering with passion and enthusiasm and sometimes a good bit of business know-how. Sometimes they're pretty much making it up as they go. <laughs> But they're creating all these amazing bookish businesses, and it has been such a delight to get to know them, to find out more about these places, to get to visit some of them in person, mm -hmm. and to see how these women are thriving in their work and their communities are as a result of it. So that's been amazing. Yeah. Finally, when I was in Kansas City, we went to two bookstores. Well, I guess three, if you count the Barnes & Noble <laughs> at Country Club Plaza. Yeah. We went to Rainy Day Books over in Fairway, Kansas. 
And then we went to a new, I think they call themselves a boozy bookstore bar. Yes. They're in the River Market neighborhood downtown. It's called Our Daily Night. Yes. That was fun to pop into. But they both said, for a community this size and a community that cares about books and reading, why don't we have more independent bookstores? I don't know. It's so sad. And, you know, other cities I visit have a ton of bookstores. And that's always something I try to to look for when I go to a new city. <laughs> and maybe that's just me. Everyone's nodding along right now. <laughs> me too, me too. You know, it, I feel like they're so easy to find and there's just so many of them. And they really hold like, especially the independent ones, they really hold the, the culture of the city. And it's really sad that we don't have as many because... Kansas City culture is just so vibrant and, and palpable when you come here. Everyone is so just just so proud of the city. And so it just makes me sad that we don't have a cultural spot like that. We have a few, but not enough, mm. I think, to carry the city. As book lovers, we, we want more. We generally are <laughs> never sad to have another indie bookstore in town. Uh, this is probably a good time to chime in with. I get requests all the time in my email and social media from readers who are traveling who want to know if there is a good independent bookstore they could visit in the town that they're going to. And sometimes I can say, oh, yes, definitely. I've been there. Mm-hmm. Let me recommend this one. Or this one is on my bookish bucket list. But there is an excellent tool at IndieBound, I-N-D-I-E, yes. bound.org. It's an independent bookstore. Or finder. Mm-hmm. And when I travel, I ask the people in town for recommendations. Sometimes I ask on Instagram or Twitter, but I always check out that independent bookstore tool. I have seen that before in searching for, for independent bookstores, and that is a really helpful tool. <laughs> Hannah, I don't want to freak your dad out, but I do <laughs> want to affirm that you got time. And it's been really interesting to see the wide variety of stores and businesses that people are opening or taking over or converting. Some are starting on a shoestring Mm -hmm. on very short notice, just are determined to figure it out as they go. And because of their town and their rent and their connections and their limitations, that works for them. And they're not in danger of losing their shirts. (laughs) Um, But other people are raising half a million dollars and planning for years before they open their shop. So there is a wide variety of ways to do this. And you don't have to open a store to get involved in a store, but you got options. So I would encourage you to have fun exploring what bookish people are doing these days and see how that resonates with you. That is encouraging. Yeah. I guess I do have plenty of years ahead of me before I really run out of time. So... (laughs) I do understand how everybody would rather be working in books today, but if it's not happening now, that doesn't mean it will never happen. And you still get to be a reader. Yes. (laughs) Tell me about your reading life these days. You know, it's funny. Before I had my daughter, I feel like I kind of fell off the reading wagon because I was in college and it, it was just hard to read and study at the same time. But then I had her and... I discovered how to read and hold her at the same time. <laughs> and it was just a lot of free time. And I remember that year, I read so many books. But it was kind of chaotic, picking up suggestions here and there. But then I met Whitney Connard, who oh, she was on your show. I need to come back to Kansas City to meet her. Yes. <laughs> and you. Yeah. It's funny, actually. Her husband and my husband worked together. Um, I heard about her Unread Shelf project and... I realized that I have a lot of books that I have not read or even touched in years, but I would still love to read them. So lately I've been working on that and just reading what I've got. I'll still go to the library every now and then, but it is comforting to know that I have plenty of great books to choose from just on my own shelves. 
you've gotten to go shopping for your next read on your bookshelves, yes. like Will Schwalbe was just talking about. Yeah, yeah. I really resonated with that statement, um, shopping at your own home. Was past Hannah good to future Hannah with your book purchases? I think so. It's, you know, my book purchases are so, I don't know the right word for it. I don't have a plan <laughs> when I go looking at books. I look at what's good, look at the covers. I recognize titles and I'll just pull it off the shelf and, and buy it. I still have a lot of books that I have inherited from my sister or even stolen from my sister in past <laughs> years, and I'm just holding on to them. And I recently read one that I absolutely loved, and that was just really, it's really pleasant, you know, to ha to read a book that you've had for years and for it to be one that you cherish. It's fun to explore that. Hannah, is that book going to come up in your favorites? It'll come up in my um, currently reading because I just, okay. I just okay. finished it yesterday. Because <laughs> we just can't let that slide by. No, no. <laughs> you said something that made me think that you had recently begun tracking what you read and that that was a change for you. Yes. Early this year, I was just kind of looking at this map that we have on our, on our wall. I was thinking about how when people travel, they check off the places on a map. You know, I don't get to travel as often, but I do read a lot of books that take place in a lot of places. I thought, well, why don't I just get a map and color in the places that I visit through my books? The settings are all kind of concentrated, it seems, in, you know, America and mostly like New York or big cities, or they take place in Europe and like England and well, really it's just England, it seems. <laughs> so, and there's not, not a lot of like new places that I've been to through my books even. So I've been trying to find diversity in that. And that's when I started pulling off specific books off of my shelf, really looking into where they take place pulled a bunch of books off of the shelves and kind of made a stack of books that take place in various countries. And I tried organizing them geographically even to kind of get a better picture of what I'm missing um, from my shelves. And that was really eye-opening for me. You mentioned that you had a particularly strong eye roll for the excessive number of books set in New York City. There are so many. And I've actually never been to New York City. So Maybe if I went there, I would understand a little more of, you know, the inspiration that people feel when they go there. But man, when I was organizing my books geographically, I realized there are dozens of books that I have that take place there that I want to read. But at the same time, do I want to read them all this year, especially when I'm tracking that? Already on my map that I have colored in, I have so many books just stacked on top of each other in New York or in the surrounding area. And it makes me wonder about all these other places, a lot of areas in the Midwest, which of course that's special in my heart because that's where I live, even out West, you know, the Pacific coast. And I don't find a lot there, but New York, that is where writers live, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are not alone in thinking enough with the New York City books already. <laughs> Although I have to admit, I do love a good New York novel, especially if it has me Googling locations and looking at neighborhoods and trying to see what the park looked like or the big scene took place. But mm -hmm. I can understand how if you want to vicariously travel through the page mm -hmm. and you want to go a lot of places, then you want books to take you some different places. Yeah. Are there any good books set in Kansas City? You know, I have not found very many. Jillian Flynn, she has written a couple, like, I think, 
but I only read Gone Girl, which took place in the St. Louis area. And then it did. Yeah. And I think I read Sharp Objects, but even that was, I think, also in the St. Louis area. So there's really not a lot in Kansas City. All right. Listeners, if you have any recommendations, go tell us in the show notes on this episode. Yes, please. <laughs> For good Kansas City books. I can't wait to hear more about the books that you do enjoy reading, and then we will try to take you around the world with today's book recommendations. You know how this works. You are going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately, and then we'll talk about what you should read next. Let's start with your favorites. Tell me about a book you love. The Martian by Andy Weir. When I was picking these books, it was kind of funny because I... Honestly, I didn't think I was going to be on the show. So I was kind of, <laughs> I was just looking at my bookshelf and like, oh yeah, I really loved that book and I loved that book. But this one was really special, actually. I read it in college. I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid. That was one of my dreams. But then I saw Apollo 13 and that really freaked me out. <laughs> and so I was just over with the being stranded in space and anything to do with space. But the cover was really intriguing. And I remember seeing a lot of people on Instagram talking about this book. I picked it up and didn't really read the back cover or anything about it other than there was an interview with the author at the end of the book. And I kind of flipped through that. I just really liked his voice and his humor and he has a, a love for Doctor Who that I can really uh, resonate with. So I... See, I've never seen an episode, so that just went right over my head when I read the book. <laughs> I thought it was very, very clever. Put a new uh, spin on science fiction for me that I really enjoyed. So the premise of the book is a crew goes to Mars to, you know, do scientific exploration. Something goes wrong and one of the crew members gets left behind the one who gets left behind, Mark, is kind of the most unlikely person to survive by himself on a new planet because he is a botanist and an engineer. It was kind of one of those funny, like, why are you an astronaut? What are you doing on Mars? But he was mostly there just to help with the equipment and then also to study potential life on Mars. And when he gets left there by himself, he kind of has to become like, you know, like MacGyver and find clever ways to survive. And the format of the book is really just interesting. It's his daily logs and it's just very scientific at first, but he's also really funny and sarcastic because he's alone on the planet. And what's the point of being professional when you're alone on the planet? <laughs> it's very fun, but it's also really intense and suspenseful and keeps you guessing. Definitely an adventure story. I read it so fast, which is funny for me because I don't typically go towards science fiction or even science-y books. There was no romance, which was kind of nice for me. I, I don't always love romance in novels. I feel like sometimes they get in the way. And in this book, it definitely would have gotten in the way because how can you make sense of a romance uh, of a guy who's alone on Mars? You know, <laughs> you can't really romance those potatoes. No, no. So it was just very focused on the matter at hand. And I loved it. Okay. So it surprised you in all the right ways. Yes. Excellent. Hannah, tell me about the second book you chose. Was it hard to choose? It was very hard to choose. <laughs> I chose one and then I emailed your producer, Brenna, to change it to this other one because I needed something that I had read more recently than the one I initially chose, which was The Time Traveler's Wife. I read that back in high school. 
Um, one that I did love recently was We Were the Lucky Ones by Georgia Hunter. Tell me more. One of my best friends, Natalie, she texted me one day and just sent a picture of the cover of this book and said, have you read this? And I was like, no, I've never even heard of it. Obviously, I put a hold on it at the library. I kind of forgot about it, but when I got it, it just grabbed me immediately. I feel like I read a lot of World War II era novels, you know, historical fiction or even like memoirs or anything like that. And this one was just absolutely the best one I've ever read. I thought it was fiction at first for like several chapters in, but then I realized the author was actually writing about her own family and the stories were were true and that completely shocked me because it seemed so impossible. I started reading the afterword halfway through reading the book because I had to I had to know how she found out about these stories and her her research process because I just couldn't believe it. This is Georgia Hunter's story of her own family's history. She had four family members, all siblings, by nothing short of a miracle. Her entire family made it out of Nazi-occupied Europe to safety at various parts around the world. The odds of one family having so many family members make it to safety instead of ending up in a concentration camp were unbelievably... The odds were extremely low. Extremely low. It's interesting. We actually had Georgia Hunter on the podcast back in October of 2018. That is episode 157, The Stories Behind the Stories We Love to Read. And shortly thereafter, I got to meet Georgia. She spoke at the Historical Society here in town. And I don't believe I'm conflating. And I'm a little (laughs) afraid that I'm about to tell you something she talked about at the Historical Society and not on the podcast. But she talked about how... This is fiction, but the story itself is true. And she said, I thought this was so interesting, that the reason she changed and decided to write it as a novel is she wanted her characters to be able to speak about what they were feeling Mm -hmm. so that the reader, through the character's eyes, could see what it was like to be, for example, stealing a, oh, it's either a Nazi uniform, a nurse uniform, but she tells the story about how one of her relatives, Don's Clothing, for the purpose of hiding and boldly walks out the gates of the city with a bunch of rifled officers watching her. And she said that she knew this happened, but she couldn't have her character tell you precisely what she did or what she saw when she looked around or what was going on in her mind and her heart unless she made it a novel. And I thought that was so, so interesting. Yes. And I think that's what I loved most about it because you read a lot of historical accounts of true stories and it it just reads very much like a documentary which are great but you don't really get to know the characters and you don't really feel for them or sympathize with them that's what I really loved you really you really felt like you knew them and you were really cheering them on it wasn't like you're just watching from afar um and you I I remember just reading throughout this book and just feeling like this heavy weight on me of how much I wanted this family to reunite. And I just remember thinking it it reminded me so much of Game of Thrones and like the Starks all being separated throughout the entire show and how much I wanted the, the family to get together. And I just kept thinking like, oh, once they find each other, everything will be great again and everything will be fixed. And of course, that's not true all the time. But you know, throughout this book, I'm just thinking, oh, they need to find each other. They don't even know they're alive. It was just really sad for me to to read that, but it also really kept me reading and kept me engaged. 
And that's what I need in a novel. Okay. That's really interesting that you said that it reads like a documentary because what I've noticed so far with The Martian, and we were the lucky ones, two very disparate books. I mean, these are on polar opposite ends of the bookstore, but they're both very, very detailed Mm -hmm. in their descriptions. And they can make you feel because you can see everything in your mind. They make you feel like you're right there. Yes. Okay. So we were the lucky ones had four different narrators. Some readers found that a little confusing, but you like that. I like that a lot. Okay. okay. <laughs> what did you choose for your final favorite? My final favorite was Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. And probably the first classic that I read by myself out of my own volition and absolutely loved it. I'm a big fan of classics and, you know, Jane Austen and Edith Wharton and Ellen Montgomery. And, you know, I read Anna Karenina last year and I loved that, but It's the writing style that I really like. I love the um, blend of of poetry and also practicality. Like there's a weird mix of those two. It it didn't really bog me down with a bunch of details, but there was also like an eloquence of speech that is very specific to that time period. It made me just want to reread sentences over and over again, not because I didn't catch something, but just because I loved the way it sounded. I also just loved the story itself. I love those kind of characters that are just lovable because of their person and and who they are, not necessarily that they have everything together, they have everything going for them. She's not arrogant at all. She was compassionate and, I don't know, she was just someone I feel like I resonated with, especially when I read it back in middle school or high school. It really spoke to me. I love that you love classics. And it's funny that you chose Jane Eyre the way you're describing your reading experience because after I graduated from college and spent a little bit of time reading all the new books, I finally realized, oh, if I can read whatever I want to now, I can start reading the classics I was never assigned in high school and college. And Jane Eyre was one of the first ones I read. Yeah, there's something about that one that it's just very welcoming for people who maybe have not read many classic books and isn't a hard one to read either. The language doesn't really slow you down. I feel like it's very easy to read. So it was a very good first classic book to read for me. Okay. And you like the eloquence of speech. Mm -hmm. It's also very atmospheric. Yeah. I don't remember much about the specifics of the setting, but I, I do just remember falling in love with that era and that type of place. Cause I, I remember after reading it, feeling I needed to read more books like it, like Jane Austen, and because of the the atmosphere. Hannah, did you have a hard time choosing a book that wasn't for you? No. <laughs> what I, did you choose? I chose 1,000 White Women, The Journals of May Dodd by Jim Fergus. And man, I really hated this book, and I'm not afraid to say it. <laughs> Tell me more. I just feel like it was one of the worst books I've read. And of course, this is just for me. It takes place in 1875. A Cheyenne Indian chief demands the U.S. government for 1,000 white women to be sold to them for wives. And this actually happened. And the book is asking the question, well, what if the U.S. government agreed? I didn't feel like that idea was really carried out because you know, partway through the book, the government is saying, no, I'm just kidding. We're not going to send all these women. So history didn't really change. That bothered me a lot because it felt like the author cheated and like 
we're not changing history with this book, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. It bothered me that it was written by a man, but it took place from the perspective of a woman, and there were a lot of things that happened in the book. It, it didn't feel as realistic to me coming from reading it as a woman, and then it, it just seemed like there was a story that didn't get told. So Hannah, it sounds like this didn't work for you because it promised you realism, fictional realism, but it promised you realism and you feel like it didn't deliver. Yes. Okay. So if a book is going to set itself up to be realistic, it needs to feel realistic. Yeah. And it felt more forced for the sake of, I feel like, you know, there were a lot of characters in there that were, I I didn't have any sympathy for them because they all kind of acted as one personality. You know, they all acted very in control of their circumstances and very arrogant. And to me, characters in those kind of positions or, you know, a person in that kind of position of being sold into marriage, you wouldn't feel very in control. Hannah, what are you reading right now? Well, I finished um, yesterday The Interpreter of Maladies by Jimbo Mm -hmm. Lahiri. That was the book I was talking about earlier that I had stolen from my sister and read. The book short stories kind of centered around immigrants from India, different stories that immigrants could experience. And I feel like it gave me a new appreciation for immigrant stories. And it was really special to me to read because both of my grandmothers are immigrants. So I feel like I kind of got to hear their story or experience their stories in different ways because they're all very different. And I just love how it ended very hopefully and I mean, the whole book just gave me all sorts of good feelings, and I, I absolutely loved it. Hannah, what would you like to be different in your reading life? Well, as I kind of shared earlier, I'd love to read just a variety of settings. To kind of narrow that down a little bit, I'd love to read books written by people from those places. I feel like that gives me a perspective that I need. You know, I feel like one of the reasons why people read is to experience life through other people's eyes and to learn things that they didn't know before. And, you know, even if it's a a fictional story, I feel like we can kind of get a glimpse of that. I always assume that little piece of the author is in there somewhere. And so I'd like to have that perspective of the people that come from those places that I read about. Another thing I would like, just more inspiration for myself. And I, I feel like I'm creative and some ways. And so I'd like to feel more inspired in that, in that regard too. Okay. So let's take a look at your books. You loved The Martian by Andy Weir. Mm-hmm. We Were the Lucky Ones by Georgia Hunter and Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Books that on the surface look very, very different, but they do have definite common threads. They're all very atmospheric, independent on place. They have very, very detailed descriptions. They're all emotional in very different ways. At least, I don't know. Could you call The Martian bittersweet? You could definitely call Georgia Hunters and Bronte's bittersweet. I think so. And I'm definitely noticing that you use the word hopeful Mm -hmm. and good feelings more than once. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to have a happy ending. I don't want you to think that because I, I, I feel like I read a lot of sad books too that don't always end the way you want it to. But I like a feeling of hope or like a glimpse of hope, even in those sad endings when things don't work out and people die and whatever, like I need that bit of, it's going to be okay. Let's talk about that atmosphere in detail for a second. 
I've seen your literary embroideries on Instagram. Yes. Wow. <laughs> Those are incredible. I'm remembering one scene specifically from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where they're walking into the forest. And it's, I didn't know you could do that with needle and thread. What inspired you to start doing that? I started embroidery last year. It was kind of like a New Year's resolution. I just wanted to learn something new and I love crafts, but I wanted something that was cheap. <laughs> Knitting and crocheting, the yarn just costs too much money for me to, to do it all the time. So I started in embroidery because I kind of saw some things on Pinterest and it was something that was easy enough that I could pick it up. And, you know, I practiced it throughout the year and it was really fun. But then, you know, someone actually asked me to make her a picture of her house that she had just bought. And so I did that and she actually paid me, which was great. I felt like, man, I could make a business out of this. But at the same time, I was looking around Etsy and I, I just saw a lot of people making customs for people's homes and, you know, wedding dates and kids' names and that kind of thing. And it seemed like there was a lot of that already. I wanted to do something new. I wanted to do something that I haven't seen before. And while I was thinking about all that, I kind of got this vision of that scene from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that picture of Lucy and Mr. Tumnus by the lamppost and walking arm in arm. I have seen a lot of visual interpretations of that scene before, but I've never seen one embroidered. I've never seen any scene from a book that was embroidered. It just kind of occurred to me, like, why? Why haven't I seen that? I feel like that could be done. It took me a very long time to do it. <laughs> I am very slow with embroidery, but uh, I listen to a lot of your podcasts. I, I listen to The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and I have been feeling a lot lately like reading's a very solitary act. And so, you know, spending time with my husband or with my daughter, it's very hard to do and read at the same time. <laughs> this was something I felt like I could do and also like engage in conversation or listen to a book or a podcast together and, you know, still feel like I'm engaging with someone else. I sold that one pretty much right away. And I recently finished a portrait of Peter Rabbit, which is really fun. And that one's for sale right now. But right now I'm working on a portrait of Anne Shirley from Anne of Green Gables. Also a, a scene from Madeline, which oh. includes the, the house covered in vines and the 12 little girls. That one's really fun. And it's just fun to find what people are nostalgic for and what's special to them. And it does make me think a lot more about the atmosphere in books and how I can translate that onto needle and thread. Hannah, has doing that embroidery changed the way you read in any way? I imagine that you really have to focus on the details of a scene and the picture the author is drawing for you in order to bring it to life the way you've done. Yeah, you know, I think... I have definitely been using my imagination more, which I feel like I have always been really good at, but I am picturing more the scene that's laid out in front of me and, you know, imagining the little details like the trees in the background or what color the sky is or what the characters look like specifically, not just like a general idea. It definitely does make me pay attention more, not just to the overall atmosphere of the book, but also the little details, which... I'm always very grateful for authors who, who can describe that really well, but even authors who don't necessarily. It's very fun to, to use my imagination in that way. Well, I have books in mind for you. I don't know that you're going to want to embroider any of those. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> 
Hannah, I really want to focus on taking you around the world. I'm guessing that some of these books have been hard to find on your own. Maybe they're hard to find when you shop your own bookshelves. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. We've talked about some great books set all around the globe on the podcast in the past. And since you referenced that you're one quarter Japanese and you especially enjoy reading about books from that literary and cultural heritage, I would really recommend that you go check out Sachi Argebright's episode if you haven't already. We'll get the number for you readers and we'll put that in show notes. But I want to find some ones that are less well-known. Yes. How do you feel about that? That sounds great. I love finding new books that, you know, not a lot of people have heard of. I, I feel like I need that uniqueness in my literary life. <laughs> And this doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't widely appreciated or that you never would have heard of them before, but these are the ones that I'm not seeing all over Bookstagram or splashed all over the shelves of independent bookstores that I've gotten to visit these days. The first I have in mind is The Emissary by Yoko Tawada. Is this a book that you're familiar with? No, I've never heard of it. Okay. Tawada's CV is... (laughs) Very impressive. She was born in Japan. Now she's based in Germany. She writes in both languages, but she reads in five. Oh my goodness. This book has definitely gotten literary attention. It won the National Book Award for Translated Literature. It's translated by Margaret Mitsutani. And obviously, if you didn't already know this, I can't read Japanese, but the (laughs) translation has been much praised for translating not only the prose, but the mood of the original. This is a slim book, but it really manages to pack a lot in. This is dystopian Japanese fiction. The premise is there has been this massive disaster, no going back from, and Japan has cut itself off from the rest of the world. Tawada has said that as a reader, if you see parallels to the 2011 Fukushima disaster, yes, she was definitely inspired by that. And what happens is all countries shut down and don't allow people to go in and out. They're forced to fall back on their native resources. So in The Emissary, there is a nuclear disaster. So you like a new spin on Mm sci-fi. You can see if this feels like a new spin to you. I definitely found it an interesting and provocative one. Hmm. After this nuclear meltdown, everyone is affected because the damage is so great and the repercussions so serious. But the citizens are affected differently depending on how old they are. The older citizens, the elderly, don't get sick and die. I wouldn't say they grow healthier, but not only are they impervious to it, but now their lifespan is greatly extended following the disaster. However, the small children become very, very sick very, very rapidly. And this book focuses specifically on two people and a family. There's an older man. He's 108. (laughs) He's trapped with his grandson. Actually, I think it's his great-grandson in this tiny temporary house they're living in. And so this old man who now cannot die watching his great-grandson grow old far before his time. He's watching his hair grow or his hair turn gray and his teeth fall out and he's getting so, so sick. This is just one family living out something that's happening in the whole society. But as life becomes so altered and so strange, it also becomes so precious in ways that Tawada explores that are really powerful. Yes, this is a sad book. Yes, it does explore hard things. But the underlying theme throughout, especially as she nears the end, is that life is precious and we should care well for those we love. I've described the small story about this 108-year-old man 
and his great grandson, but Tawada being who she is and feeling the way she feels about cultures and countries, there's deep symbolism throughout. What she shows you in the very personal also has vast implications for the broader perspective. And that's really interesting also. How does that sound? That sounds really fascinating. I'm really intrigued by that. I'm happy to hear it. I feel like all the titles are like, oh, this has such a great meditation on culture. This has such interesting things about identity. Oh, this takes you around the world. Are all heavier. Are you okay with that? Or should we like pivot hard to the lighter as well? I'm okay with both. I like heavy, but I feel like I do need to like kind of alternate between heavy and light because I do kind of get into like a post book depression <laughs> after, <laughs> after the really heavy ones go through a period of mourning and transition out of it with the lighter book. So great. After you read your lighter book, try this one. <laughs> it's Ghana Must Go by Taye Selassie. This came out in 2013. Do you, do you know anything about Selassie? No, I don't think so. Before this book came out, she published an essay. It's called Bye Bye Babar. She introduced the term Afropolitan. So I believe she has a TED talk on this for listeners who are thinking, I've heard of her, but I've never read Ghana Must Go. Why? That is probably why. Selassie also identifies as someone whose identity is a cultural hybrid. She's of Nigerian and Ghanaian descent. She was born in London. She was raised in Boston. Oh, wow. But she's also lived in Berlin, Lisbon, and Rome. Actually, I think she said something funny in an interview once. They said, wait, why don't you live in Paris? She's like, I couldn't find an apartment, but I could find one in Rome. You got to decide somehow. She has a twin sister. These are things that you actually all see in her story. So this is her debut novel. The title, Ghana Must Go, she's referencing back in 1983, when Ghanaians were forced to leave Lagos. This book has action that takes place in Ghana, but it's an immigrant story above all. A lot of this is autobiographical. Selassie has talked at length about how she found a lot of sympathy for her family of origin in the process of telling the stories of this fictional family that was definitely largely inspired by her personal experience. She was writing about what she knew. Something else I really like about this book is it's very detailed in its descriptions. The language is really flowery. Some readers love that. Some readers don't. (laughs) But since it's so detailed and descriptive, I think you might love it. One of the main characters is a surgeon born in Ghana. And that is Selassie's own story. Her father was a surgeon born in Ghana. The dad in the story, he comes to the East Coast to accept a job. He's a hugely respected surgeon, wildly successful in his profession. But something happens very early in the story where he is put in an absolutely impossible situation. It's charged with racial bias and it changes everything, both for this man and for this family. What we get next is a very complex family saga as we see how the implications of this one event play out for this man and for his family. When he dies, his family all reunites for the first time in ages and they go back to Ghana for his funeral. Selassie says while she was portraying very flawed characters, that she wants to give her reader a sense of even though they made decisions that are, she uses the word something like spectacularly terrible, (laughs) She really wants to give you a sense of why these people did what they did, how it was the only option they could really see available to them and how they were doing the best they could. Mm. It is slow to start. 
but it really comes together in the end. And I do think that there is a subtle but present upbeat of hope. How does that sound to you? That sounds really good. Portions of what you said reminded me of the interpreter Maladies, how Lahiri makes you sympathize with some of these characters and her stories of the decisions they make, which may not always be the right ones, but you you see it from their perspective. And I really enjoy that, understanding more of what's underneath a person rather than what you see on the outside. So that sounds really, really good. Yes. And I don't think that comparison to interpreter maladies is a mess. The next book that I think might take you to a new place around the world is a memoir by Sinel Barnes. It's called Monsoon Mansion. Is this one you're familiar with? No, it is not. Oh, great. Okay. This is a newer memoir, and in many ways, it reads like a novel, and it was just published in 2018. And it is a heart-wrenching story, but something that's really fascinating about this book, Hannah, is the way I think you'll resonate with the writer's process. She's talked about this in interviews, this memoir about growing up in an actual mansion in the Philippines. The story begins when she's three. It ends when she's age 12. It is a coming-of-age story. It's a riches-to-rags story. (laughs) It's a survival story. It's bittersweet, but uh, to be clear, mostly bitter. There's a strong note of hope at the end, and that comes from her unflagging courage in the face of just unimaginable circumstances and the fact that at the end, she escapes. Her writing process, though, I think you'll find fascinating. When Barnes had a baby, she was really drawn to be very reflective about her own childhood. She's watching her daughter begin her childhood, and she's looking back to what she experienced when she grew up. What she did was so interesting. She said that her baby was a slow, slow feeder. Six times a day, she had to sit down to nurse her. It took 40 minutes per nursing session. You read a lot Mm -hmm. when you were holding your baby. What Barnes did was she would sit down with a stack of index card, and she would start writing notes to her baby about her childhood. And when she was done with the nursing, she ended up with three shoeboxes full of index cards (laughs) and thought, I have a story here. So one day she went with her husband and they laid them all out on the floor and they started putting together the story of her childhood. Her mom came from money. Her dad was a very successful international businessman and the house represented everything they had achieved in life. But this is a riches to rags story. Mm -hmm. When her mother loses a baby, she falls apart emotionally and she becomes subject to wild mood swings. She goes into fits of rage. She's no longer a safe person to be around to her family. Thanks to, of course, real life events in the Middle East, the once successful business run by her father begins to get shakier and shakier. So seeing clear, clear trouble on the horizon financially, they use all the resources they have remaining to turn this mansion into a place that they can rent out for events and for movie shootings (laughs) and things like that. I live in Louisville where everybody rents out their houses for Derby for the big bucks. This is totally (laughs) what I am picturing. Then in a natural act that Could not be more symbolic. A record-breaking monsoon comes and floods the home and ruins everything. It wipes them out, basically. And it scatters the family and brings new shady characters in to live with Barnes and her mother. I mean, they just endure misfortune after misfortune. It feels unrelenting. But she tells all this in a very lyrical voice. She's highly descriptive. I think you'll like that. 
you know she's telling you a true story, but it does in many ways read like a novel. And I think you enjoy stories that have that narrative drive and that symbolism that are very personal, but also feel very universal. When she's 12, she goes to live with a stepsister and she gets out. She says that she came to appreciate how beautiful a completely mundane life can be. So descriptive, so interesting, so unlike anything you would experience in your regular life, I hope and pray. Well, I don't know. What do you think? That sounds really good. I don't know, just the idea of like a riches to rags story, that, that sounds really intriguing too. <laughs> I'm hoping you'll read some of these so you will tell me what you think. Hannah, we talked about The Emissary by Yoko Tawada, Ghana Must Go by Taye Selassie, and Monsoon Mansion by Sanel Barnes. Of those three books, what do you think you'll read next? I think I'll read Ghana Must Go next. That country, I don't know much about it, and I haven't gone there yet. So I think that's what I'll read next. Well, I am so interested to hear what you think. Thanks so much for talking books with me today. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Hannah, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 187, and it's where you will find the full list of titles we talked about today. You can check out Hannah's literary embroidery at her Etsy shop. That's called Embroider House 5. Yes, just like Slaughterhouse 5, but Embroider House 5. Next week, What Should I Read Next is taking the week off. But we'll be back on June 18th with a truly wonderful episode I cannot wait for you to hear. If you need something to fill the gap, visit patreon.com slash what should I read next for instant access to a vault of past behind the scenes episodes and bonus episodes of our sister show, One Great Book. And make sure you're subscribed to What Should I Read Next in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'll see you back here on the 18th. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the What Should I Read Next news and happenings. If you're not on the list, you can sign up for our free weekly delivery at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life, and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories, 
like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.